invite you to pray with me if you would. Father, we have just sung about what a beautiful name is the name of Jesus. And so I pray that in that precious name you would meet us here, each one of us. And may the word of God become what it truly is, not the word of men, but the word of God to us, so that you might accomplish your purposes in drawing us to yourself, in deepening our understanding of who you are, in bringing us across the threshold out of that grave, Father, and into your glorious kingdom. And those of us who've gone out of the grave that we might grow to live more fully in all the riches of what it means to be your children. Open our eyes, dear Father, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law and let those truths change our lives for your glory and for the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Athletes from across the globe compete for the title of fastest sprinter, biker, hurdler, and walker. That's right. Race walking isn't just a romantic comedy trope. And she tells you all her stories. You tell all your stories. It's also an Olympic sport. The rules of race walking require that the competitors move in that unorthodox way. I was stunned when I first saw it, but that's the, they, they have to walk that way in order to do it. I'm not going to go into all the details. You can Google it and find out and all the interesting things, but why they do it that way. But race walkers walk in an orthodox way. Those who are Christ walkers walk in an orthodox way when it comes to the world. As far as the world's concerned, we are the oddities of life. Race walkers are cheered. Christ walkers are jeered in the world in which we live. Two opposites. And enduring the Christian life, for us to endure, those who profess faith in Christ, for us to endure the Christian life in a world that is increasingly hostile to our faith means that we have to persevere and press ahead. We've been looking at how we do that, and part of the answer is that in faith. And we learn to navigate the treacherous roads of life as Christians in a world that is increasingly opposed to us by learning from the example of those who's gone, who've gone before us. And they give us help and hope for how we can live in this life. The author of Hebrews writes to the professing believers in the first century, people who were kind of harassed and hurting, people who were struggling to make it, they, they were misunderstood and they were a little bit, uh, you know, falling away. And so he wrote to these people, the immature and insecure people, and he told them, here's an example. I give you an example, a rock star for you to follow, not only for them, but for us, a rock star whose example of faith is one that I want you to emulate. Now, if I were to ask you, of all the people in the Bible, who do you think you would want to follow as an example of faith? My guess is that Enoch 
would be among the last people that you would have selected. In fact, many of us don't even know who he is. He is one of the most obscure and mysterious characters in all of the Bible. And yet, his example of faith is one that's stellar, it's supreme, it's one to be held up, to, to be modeled after. His example of faith is foundational. It's invaluable. And we learn most of what we know about Enoch from Genesis chapter 5. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. You can write it down if you're taking notes. But in verses 18 to 24, we learn this, that Enoch's dad was Jared. And Jared lived 962 years. Enoch's son was Methuselah. And he lived 969 years. So it's rather peculiar that Enoch only lived 365 years. But his short life, of his short life, 300 years were spent, as the writer of Genesis, Moses tells us, walking with God. For 300 years of his 365 years, he walked with God. That's Genesis 5:22 and Genesis 5:24. He walked with God. Amidst not just any old lifestyle, but amidst the tremendous perversity that was prevalent prior to the flood. In fact, in Genesis 5, where it says that he walked with God. In Genesis 6, we see the world in which he walked with God. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 says this. Moses says this. God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know how many adverbs you can throw at a verb to communicate that it was absolutely, horrendously perverse. And I would argue with you that the world in which Enoch and Noah lived is a world that parallels our own. Increasingly hostile towards those who profess faith in Christ. Increasingly hostile towards the God that we worship. Increasingly hostile towards the lifestyle that we live. Increasingly labeling our walk, our lives as unorthodox and to be jeered and not cheered like those who are race walking. And so, this morning, I want you to know that this guy named Enoch, he's one of only three men in the Bible that this description is given of. He walked with God. Now, he's not, they're not the only three guys that walked with God. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is they're the only three people that the Bible says this phrase, he walked with God. That's Enoch, Noah, and Levi. Noah's in chapter 6 of Genesis, and Levi is in Malachi chapter 2, verse 6. He walked with God. Amazingly, the Bible only records two people who never died. Enoch and Elijah. So his resume, as obscure and mysterious as the guy is, his resume fits him 
to be a prime example of a person whose faith we want to follow if we want to endure in a world that's increasingly hostile. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6. And in these two verses, we see Enoch's example of authentic faith that's revealed inspires us to possess it, but also inspires us to practice it in our daily lives. I'm going to read the text and then we'll unpack these two aspects of it. By faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before he was taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because those who come to him, or the ESV says those who draw near to him, must believe that he is or that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The first thing that we see in the text with regard to authentic faith is that we learn the consequences of authentic faith through the example of Enoch. Now, again, we're going through Hebrews chapter 11, so the key word is by faith. By faith, Enoch. Well, what faith? What is faith? Well, we had it defined a couple of weeks ago. It's the evidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, okay? But let's tease it out a little bit more. It's, kind of, it's a confident reliance upon God. It's a reliance upon God that translates into willful obedience and heartfelt submission to what God says in His Word. Furthermore, it's a grateful acknowledgement of God's goodness in all of His plan, in all of His purposes. And finally, it's a continual recognition of our, the absolute dependability of all that God has promised. Such that when God promises it, even though we don't right now realize it, we act as if it's true. So when God says that if you give and store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, you know, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. So believers actually give to serve the work of God because they believe in the fact that what they're doing is actually laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. Well, that's a little unorthodox from the world's perspective because the world says, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. God says, get all you can. Save a little bit up and give a bunch of it away. And so faith is that. What's fascinating is in the genealogical record, and you can go back and look at Genesis chapter 5, the record of, of, uh, that's given there of Adam's descendants, it, it gives the list of the names, and so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so, and then at the very last person it says this, and he died. Not news, but you know. That's thanks to Adam. 
and Eve. And then so and so and so and so and so and he died. And so and so and so and so and he died. And so and so and all of them are that way except sandwiched in the middle we read of Enoch and he was not. He died, he died, he died, he was not, he died, he died, he died. Something's going on there. Deliberate and intentional. Deliberate and informative. Indicating that what the author of Hebrews says is actually the fact. Notice in Hebrews chapter 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not die. Well, when it says in the Old Testament in Genesis, he was not, it's exactly that. He was not. He did not die. Why? Because he was taken up. He was not found. His body was not found. So that he did not die. Faith faith was the means whereby Enoch dodged death. His faith kept him alive. So that he never died. And he obtained what the author of Hebrews describes. Now we looked at this when we were in chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, look back at chapter 10. This is what the author of Hebrews says that faith results in. This is why you want to have faith. We want to exercise faith because faith leads to these things. Hebrews chapter 10, begin with verse 34 at the end. He says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. Verse 36, that you will receive what was promised. And verse 39 of those who, uh, he says, but we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He was not because he believed. And when he believed, what he, what he received, the reward that he received was the preserving of his soul. The great reward <clears throat> that the writer of Hebrews has been talking about. And he exercised faith in the face of a world that was hostile to him. The same sort of world that you live in. The same sort of world that the people to whom the author of Hebrews wrote lived in. A world that's hostile to our faith. Enoch's absolute certainty in the person of God, in the promises of God, and the plan of God actually brought about the cleansing of his heart from sin. Brought about the continuation of his heart in living before God in a right way. And it kept him from death. Now, I don't know whether God actually promised Enoch, look, uh, you believe, you won't die. I don't know. Can't prove that. Some people say that, but it's not in the text. What I do know is that he walked with God. What I do know is that The faith that results in the preserving of the soul. I want to say that again. The faith that results in the preserving of the soul, that means the ultimate escape from death, is promised to every one of us who would believe. That's not unique to Enoch. Now, if God promised him he wouldn't die, that would be unique, okay? Because we all know that we die. Everybody except for him and Elijah that we know of recorded in the Bible, at least, died. But we do know this, that there's a promise that if we believe, our soul will be preserved. That is something we can bank on. And to punctuate the place of faith, 
in our deliverance, that means deliverance from ultimately from death, eternal death, the author of Hebrews quotes the Septuagint translation of Genesis 5.24. Now, I'm going to use this word, okay? The Septuagint is actually, they took the Hebrew and translated it into Greek, okay? So what we're saying is that the author of Hebrews here is quoting the Old Testament translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So here's the deal. I'm going to explain it to this. When it says he was not found because God took him up, that's not what you read in Genesis chapter 5 verse 24. But that's the essence of what is true of Genesis chapter 5 verse 24. To experience the reward of life in God and with God, we must express authentic faith. Even though most of us won't escape death like Enoch. In fact, I'm pretty sure none of us will escape death like Enoch. I don't know that for sure. He died first, but if we have faith, we'll still live. Right? Okay. Uh, let me see here. Cora, would you do me a favor? Yeah, no, wait a second now. I promise you, that if you come here and sit on this stool, I will give you uh, a small reward. <clears throat> now, do you trust me? Okay, then come up here and sit down. Just on this chair now. This one, you can't pick any other one. You've got to sit on that one. Nope, just sit down. You're not going to be here very long. Okay, there you go. Thank you, you can go have a seat. <laughs> now, did Cora earn that $5 bill? She earned it, so she worked for it. Did she deserve the $5 bill? I don't think so. She didn't work for it. She didn't earn it. She didn't deserve it. But she exercised faith in the promise that she would receive it if she did what I said. It was a reward given to her. Now, you can argue the theology of all that maybe later with me if you want. But, and maybe it's not the greatest example. But when God exists and he has promises and we follow and do what God has said and we walk and live with him then we receive a reward that's not something we deserve earn or God owes us it's a promise given and a gift received Enoch was not and we see that he had faith, and that faith was the reason or the resulted in his reward. So that's the reward. The consequence of, of, of faith, of authentic faith, is the reward. Now, what is the composition of authentic faith? What does it look like? How do we ma ma um, tease it out? Okay, There are three elements of authentic faith that I want to 
bring to your attention that I think come from the text. And the first one is this. What is the integrity of authentic faith? The integrity of authentic faith. If you look at chapter 11, verse 5, the second aspect, the second part of the phrase, it says for. That's an interesting word, for, because for gives us the reason for something. Okay, It's because or for. What is the reason... What is the reason Enoch was taken up? Why was it that he received the reward? It gives us that reason why he was taken up, and it provides the first insight into the composition of what authentic faith really amounts to. It was witnessed about Enoch that before he was taken up, this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, that he was pleasing to God. Well, if you go back into Genesis chapter 5, you don't read those words. Because here again, the author of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament Greek translation, which actually says he was pleasing to God. The Old Testament Hebrew translation is he walked with God, so that he walked with God is the same as he was pleasing to God. So if we want to know what it means that he was pleasing to God, we have to know what it means that he walked with God. Because he walked with God is translated in the Greek as he was pleasing to God, so that we know what it means for us to be pleasing to God is actually for us to walk with God. The New International Dictionary of the Old Testament theological exegesis, which you really don't care about, uh, defines walking with God. It says this word actually means for the, the process or the act of living. It's pretty simple. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to live with God. It's the act or process of living. How do you live? Do you live with God or against God? Enoch lived with God. <clears throat> he walked with God. And according to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, one of the only other two people that it says in the Bible he walked with God. We see Noah. Noah in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. It says he walked with God because he was blameless and righteous. So the act of living with God means that we are actually living blamelessly or righteously. We're living in a way that's consistent with God's word, with God's will, and God's way. So that's what it is means there. Um, some of you heard about this big hullabaloo about these uh, people who are bribing and, and, uh, so that their kids can get into prestigious universities, you know, which I didn't know USC was all that prestigious, but uh, evidently it is. I, I mean, Stanford and Yale and Harvard, but USC? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I guess I don't live in California. I'm not up on these things. Anyhow, there was one of the people, one of the parents was a lawyer, and this was this man's statement. He said, I'm not worried about the moral issue here. That's why lawyers get a bad rap, see. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not worried about the moral issue here. What he's worried about is if she, speaking of his daughter, gets caught, she's finished. Now, that's not blameless and righteous living. That's not walking with God. That's walking contrary to God. Before being taken up, Enoch was walking with God for 300 years of his 365 that he was on the earth. And so to me, Enoch's faith preceded and produced 
his right living. He was confident in God and God's promises. He was celebrating God's goodness. He was submitting to God's word. He was cleansed of his sin. He was continuing in his dependence upon God. And he was kept from death because his faith preceded and then it produced a walk of consistent living with God. His spiritually fruitful walk was produced by his genuine faith. So for us, if that's going to be true for us, that we're going to walk with God, then the same dynamics must be at work in us. And there are at least two dynamics that I think are true in Enoch's life that must be true in us in order for us to walk with God. And the first one is that we must enter into communion with God. We must be in a relationship with God if we are to walk with God. Amos 3.3 says this, Do two men walk together unless they agree? Which the answer is no. They don't walk together unless they agree. I like R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on this passage. Uh, he describes walking with God. It's, it means mutual agreement. And this is his little quip, which you might find cute. I thought it was kind of interesting. He says, we're, when we're walking with God, we're in agreement that we're on the same path as God, going the same place as God at the same pace as God. Mutual agreement. So how do sinful fallen people live in agreement with a holy and righteous God? They don't. Unless the sinful fallen people get in agreement with God and get right with God. And we all know that the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We deserve God's punishment because of our sin. But only... Because of his mercy and grace in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross, we can be made right with God. And only when we're made right with God are we in agreement with God. And only when we're in agreement with God can we walk with God. So we must be in communion with God. Only faith in Christ brings us into this relationship. Well, yeah, but Enoch, he didn't, he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't do that. We had faith. And he had faith, he looked forward to the promise of a Savior. Somehow, some way, I don't know, you can look at Abraham too, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the Old Testament saints look forward in faith to the work of Christ in a way that was foggy and cloudy and they didn't quite fully understand it, in a way that we look back on the cross of Christ in faith and accept that it's true. You see, you can't walk with God. I can't walk with God unless I'm in a relationship with God. And it makes, it's made very clear to me, at least in 1 John chapter 6, uh, verses, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And in, in that, those verses, it, it says that if we say that we've come to know him and we walk in darkness, we're, we're a liar. And you know 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 is the same thing. In order to be, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, because I don't want you to think that I'm just making this up. Because it does connect, at least in my mind. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If walking with God is living my life 
consistently in accordance with God's word, I must know God first, this verse says. If we've come to know him, he says, if we say that we have come to know him and we... uh, And by this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. In verse 4, the one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. So in order for me to walk with God, I must be in a relationship with God. If I'm in a relationship with God, then I'm obedience. Obedience is the evidence of being in a relationship with God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, 1 John 2, 1 John 2, uh, verses 3 through 6. And it's the indwelling Spirit of God that makes this possible. So, okay, so that's it. We must be in a relationship with God. We must be in union with God. Secondly, we must embrace submission to God. I'm in a relationship with God. Okay, I can be in a relationship with God and I have faith in Christ and and do that, but I don't necessarily submit my life every every day to what God wants me to do. So that requires a daily submission to the Lord, in my opinion. You have your Bibles open, I want you to turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised up with Christ, the writer of uh, Paul writes, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, when you also will be revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Then he says this in verse 5. Therefore consider yourselves, your members of your earthly body as dead. To immorality, impurity, and passion, and evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So you put off and you put on. And that's a work of the Spirit of God on a continual basis. I'm a new creature in Christ if I'm trusting in Christ. But that doesn't mean that every part of the junk in my life has been eradicated. I put it off, that, and I put on. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 uh, says, uh, If then we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ... Produce the work within me. And I begin to change my life. The indwelling spirit gives me the power to walk with God as a continual bringing my thoughts, my actions, my attitudes, my interactions, my conversations under the lordship of Christ. You know, you wake up this morning thinking, well, how am I going to interact with my, if you're married, with your spouse, with your parents? Or with your children, or with your neighbor. I, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to exercise love. I'm going to choose by God's grace. God, I ask you, Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit of God, to animate my life with love towards these people that is selfless and sacrificial. I'm yesterday. I'm having my devotions, and I'm I'm thinking about the the message and praying through. What Enoch walked with God. I believe that he surrendered his life daily, moment by moment, into the power of the Spirit to to live and animate his life in a way that would bring glory to God and obedience to his word and his will and his way. And I said, Lord, that's what I want to do today. My wife is feeling crummy, and I want to help her and encourage her, and how can I show the love of Christ to my wife? And then she asked me to write a letter, and I said, no. 
And I went, oh, so much for that. Moment of spiritual sanctification. How does that happen? And you've done it too. You've read a, a, a scripture on how you're supposed to be patient and you walk out the door and you trip on something and you go, oh, who put that there? Moment by moment, surrender to the Spirit's power in my conversations, in my actions, in my attitudes, in my relationships, in my interactions. I did write the letter. Um, but it's like, this is the struggle, but this is the, the energizing power. It's God's Spirit working within us. We were talking, it's funny, interesting to me, because I was thinking about this, but uh, Joseph Tsan, who's a missionary in the communist bloc during the Cold War, he was persecuted for his faith, and I heard him actually say that we should view our lives as a cup that is filled to the brim. And when our life is bumped, what spills out? Love or hate? Enoch walked with God because he was in a relationship with God and because he daily surrendered his life to the work of, of God in his heart that he would live it. And in fact, he lived in such a horrendously wicked world that part of what he did in obedience to God was he spoke out against the wickedness of his culture. One of the only other places, there's a place in, I think, Luke chapter 3, but the only other places where Enoch is mentioned it is in Jude chapter, no, not chapter, Jude 14 and 15, okay? Verses 14 and 15. And in Jude 14 and 15, Enoch brings a scathing indictment against all the ungodliness of all the ungodly people in all the ungodly world. I mean, it's like it just trips over itself, all the ungodly, 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 you know? 14. Do we have that? I don't think we do. But you can look it up. Jude 14 and 15, all right? It's like this was his evidence of his faith fleshed out. To walk with God requires a relationship with God, which results in consistent daily obedience. And you know, I, I, was, I was praying about this, and I was thinking, you know, Lord, as I communicate this, I want you to understand this is not just a suck it up message. You know, it's not just like, okay, I got to pull on my bootstraps and be a better Jesus person. What is impossible with men is only possible with God. This is the Spirit of God animating us in ways that we cannot do, but we must be surrendered and submitted to His work. Secondly, I want you to see the necessity of authentic faith in verse 6. See, the author states in a general way in verse 6 what Enoch is the illustration of, and that is without faith it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Nobody pleases God apart from authentic faith. Or, you might say it this way, only authentic faith pleases God. Okay? Enoch dodged death because, he was fa because his faithful living was evidence of living faith. Faithful living is evidence of living faith. My faith is alive. My life will live a life of faith. Okay? And that's what we see. Now, there's a danger here because we can tend to think, well, if I just have to work harder, right? I mean, I'm going to work. If I work and it becomes work salvation, 
or works sanctification. No, that's not it. We're full of a world in which even us in the church, religious self-effort, if I just work harder, then I'm more pleasing to God. Apart from the Spirit's work in my life, it's gobbledygook, it's worthless, it's filthy rags. It must be the Spirit of God animating it. I mean, look, we're all proud of our denominational loyalty sometimes. We're proud of the fact of our church attendance or the money that we give in the offering plate or we serve sacrificially or we, oh, I took a vow for Lent to live simplicity that I no longer will drink Starbucks for 40 days or whatever, you know, that we think is a big sacrifice. And then we think we're pleasing God with all that. And what I see here is that we can't do that. John Owen put it this way. It's impossible to please God any other way but by faith. Let men desire, design, and aim at it whilst they please. They shall never attain to it. There's the integrity of faith. That we walk with blameless righteousness. There is this necessity of faith without it we can't please God and then finally we see the anatomy of faith the the four again in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11 uh, verse 6 you see the four there the four introduces why faith is necessary and then it teases out the the parts of of its anatomy first we must believe that God exists now that's a big stretch some people don't believe that God exists a lot of people in our culture are like, I heard it described to me, the Quaker visiting with the atheists. We're like the atheists. And the atheist says to the Quaker, he says, I don't believe in God because I can't see him and I can't hear him and I can't feel him. And the Quaker says to him, have you seen your brain? Have you touched your brain? Have you heard your brain? What makes you think you have a brain? You You see, our sensory perception is limited in the sense that we tend to believe that only what we can engage with our five sensory abilities is real. When in fact there's a reality that's just as real. Oh, thank you, Tracy. Yeah, I appreciate that. Reality that is just as real that we can't see, we can't feel, we can't touch, we can't hear. Have you ever heard gravity? I've never heard gravity. Have you ever heard the wind? And don't say yes. You don't hear the wind, you hear the effects of the wind. Right? Do you see The gravitational forces at work inside of the protons, neutrons, and electrons, and all of the dynamic forces that are at work in there that hold your body together? Absolutely not. You don't feel it either. But it's there. The fact that God exists is a rational and moral reality, evidence for which is great. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3. You can look at that later, okay? The creation itself testifies the reality of God. He doesn't go into that here, but there is a reality that the world denies. They deny it, and it's immoral, and it's irrational, actually. 
to deny the existence of God. But we must acknowledge, but what God do we believe exists? <laughs> then you get, well, well, we could be the Hindu gods. Well, there's about 30,000 of them. You know, a rock, a tree, a bush, or a, a stone can be a god in the, in the pantheon of Hinduism. What God do we believe exists? We must believe in the God who is the creator, the ruler, the judge, who requires and demands of us holiness. The God who is love and mercy and grace, who provided a way for us through the death of his son on the cross. This is the God we must believe exists. Providing forgiveness for all who would repent and believe. That's God. That's the God we believe. That's the God Enoch believed in. It's the God Noah believed in. It's the God Abraham believed in. It's a God we must. When we draw near to God, that's what the text in the ESV says, they'll come to God, we must draw near to God. If we draw near to God, drawing near to God is to come in faith for our cleansing from our sin, but also for the continuation. So do you see in here, when you draw near to God, it, it assumes that you've come near to God in humility and repentance and brokenness, confessing your sin and acknowledging that God alone can rescue and deliver you through His Son. But it also is a continual drawing near to God. That's the dependence and the surrender that I need God in my life every single day to go about and do what He calls me to do. I need His wisdom and I need His strength. For apart from Him, I can do nothing. And secondly, we must believe that God rewards those who seek Him. He exists and He rewards, He, he fulfills His promises. And to seek Him, again, is basically parallel to draw near. I, when I seek Him, I'm, I'm coming in and accepting His gift of salvation. Amos chapter 5 verse 4 talks about seeking Him. I know there's a Romans 3 passage that says nobody seeks after God. So I'm not going to get into that right now, okay? But the reality is that God is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's John chapter 4. Okay. For these the Father seeks, those kind of worshipers. So there's a stirring in the heart that brings us to a place of brokenness and surrender and acceptance of Christ's death on the cross as a payment for our sin. And then we seek Him on a continual, ongoing basis. It's saving faith that translates into a living faith. That's what it is to draw near. That is to seek God. It acts consistently. We act consistently in light of His promises. In light of His prescribed word in light of his plan for our life so that this is a daily moment by moment thing and I think as Christians we lose sight of that was why well, I come to church on Sunday morning and then I hope I get filled up enough to kind of drain me out through the rest of the week and then I can come back no it's a moment by moment daily surrender to the lordship of Christ in our life that enables us to walk with God so that our lives are changed and we are this kind of to the world you know That's what God desires for each of us. Authentic faith doesn't merit any reward. I'm going to say it again. It doesn't merit any reward. It's not like God owes us because we have faith. But it results in a reward. Martin Bucer put it this way. 
aptly stated, all the good that God does to us and the eternal life that he gives us still remain the result of his grace alone so that no one should boast of himself but only in the Lord. There's nothing I can boast about because I say if you believe that God rewards those who seek him, oh yeah, well I'm a seeker of God so I know that God's going to reward me. If he does, it's only because I was enabled to seek him by the power of his grace. You can remember this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 7, I hope I'm getting this right. No, it's 1 Corinthians 4. He says, um, what do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, our faith, our works, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. It's from God and through God and to God and for God. But we are rewarded for our faith. We don't live for the rewards. You know, that's, that's not the deal. Authentic faith brings us into the relationship. We don't live for our rewards. Those who seek the rewards, no, that's not authentic faith. But those who seek God receive the rewards. Albert Einstein said this, Certainly there is a God. Any man who does not believe in a cosmic force is a fool. But we could never know him. Einstein's brilliance couldn't overcome his spiritual blindness. Enoch disproved Einstein's theory about God. Not relativity, but his theory about God. Because Enoch knew God. Not a cosmic force. You know, this is not Star Wars. This is reality. Enoch's life was a map for believers, okay? To help us navigate the, the turbulent seas of the world in which we live that's contrary to our faith. I wonder this morning, can you say, I am in union with Christ? I am trusting in His death on the cross and that alone is the payment for my sin and I know that I'm a child of His and you know if you're a child of His, by faith, you please God. But then I wonder, if I'm in union with Christ, am I living in surrender to Christ? Is there an area of my life that I just, you know, I'm just holding on to my own sinful pattern of rebellion against God, or I'm just not willing to bring this area under the Lordship of Christ? And name it. Don't claim it. Name it. And then bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, by your grace, I need you. You know, I trust the Lord. Give me grace to trust you more in this area. There's some idol, there's some activity, some persistent pattern of outbursts of anger, or if there's some thought pattern that just seems to take me captive, Lord, forgive me. Help me to gain victory over it. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, he has to give me the power to do it. I just have to cooperate in the process. 
And then Enoch's life is a light to show you this morning, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's a light to show you how it is that you can be made right with God and how you can live in a way that pleases God that is for eternity and results in the, rest, the preserving of your soul. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ and his death alone is the payment for your sin and then surrender each day. Isn't it fascinating that the ultimate reward for authentic faith is the preserving of our soul, but the preserving of our soul came at a great cost. And as we celebrate the, the communion this morning, as we take the bread and we break it and as we drink the cup, we remember Christ's body broken and his blood shed so that we could have our soul preserved if we would believe. Peter said, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. Not by our works, by his wounds, we are healed. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The object of our faith is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we trust in his existence and we execute his plan uh, and his plan that's executed. And so as we take these elements, I invite you, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, to rejoice in the rewards that he gives to his faithful before you come to repent of sin that needs to be cleansed so that you're actually walking with God as you come to take the elements. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I just say get it right with God and, and turn from your sin and trust Him today. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for Enoch. A challenge to my life. I pray that you would work in my heart. That I would walk with God as one who is in communion with you as one who has surrendered to you more consistently as your spirit works, as I surrender and your spirit works to conform me to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You know, we have opportunity now as we take the, the bread and the cup to, to draw near to God, to look at these symbols because that's what they are, just symbols and reminders of what Jesus has done for us. And uh, so, you know, now we just invite you, if you have put your trust and faith in Christ, to come up during, during the music and to, to take, take the bread, take the cup uh, in remembrance of Jesus.